this is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles to John chapter 4 this morning. John 4, if you're using one of the Bibles in the pews, it's page 889. So on a couple of weeks ago, we began a new series called Who is Jesus? And in this series, we're walking through the Gospel of John. And in the first 11 chapters of John, really it revolves around seven signs, seven miracles that Jesus does. So in these first seven messages in the series, we're looking at these seven signs of the Savior. Last week, we looked at the first, which was when Jesus turned water into wine, and today we're going to look at the second. So it's at the end of the fourth chapter, and we're going to begin reading in verse 46, and really the text is about taking God at his word. As we look forward to a new year, are we going to be a people who are going to take God at his word? John chapter 4, and let's pick it up in verse 46, the second sign. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. So again, we're back in the same village that we were in last week. Some things have happened in the meantime, and we'll get to those in the course of the message. But it's interesting because Cana is it's a little place now, and it was a really little place in the first century, but the first two signs occurred in this village. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, that's one o'clock in the afternoon, the fever left him. The father knew that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would, by the power of your Spirit, illumine our minds and our hearts to understand your Word. And Father, we pray that you would make us people who trust in your Word. Lord, make us people of faith. We pray that you would grow us in the depth of our faith this year that we would emerge from this year trusting you more, both individually, Lord, as a church family. Father, make us a people who, who take you at your word, who step out in faith. We know that that delights 
your heart. And, and we want to be a people who bring joy to your heart, who delight your heart. And we know that nothing delights you more than when people will simply trust you. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us the grace to hear from you right now. Speak to our hearts. Speak to your people. Work this text into our understanding and out into our living, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One time, my son was getting a special gift. And so, his sisters and Melissa and I, we all got together and we said, well, we're going to give it to him in a special way. And so rather than just kind of put it in his hands in a conventional way, we sort of designed a treasure hunt for Caleb. So we made like 20 little sheets of paper and each one was a clue that was going to send him to the next clue until finally he got to the to the treasure at the end. And so we had him going all over the place. He was going in the closet and he was going up in the attic. We had him going uh, in out in the garage. At one point, the poor guy was digging a hole in the ground underneath a tree only to find a little piece of paper that was the next clue. Um, and so we just sent him all over the place. But as he was doing it, and we were trailing along laughing, you know, the whole time he was doing it, but I could see the excitement building in my son because it was pretty obvious that this wasn't going to be just a normal gift that we, since we had gone to such lengths uh, to, to, to go through this, this, this treasure hunt because we knew what treasure awaited him at the end. The Gospel of John is like that in a way. John is painting a portrait of our treasure, Jesus, and in the first 11 chapters of John, he's dropping these clues about who Jesus is. And he refers to these seven clues as signs. Signs point beyond themselves. And these seven signs, these seven clues are pointing to who Jesus is. So today we're on the second one. What does it say to us about who Jesus is and about what a relationship with him is all about? Let's first of all take a look at the situation that, that is happening here. Verses 46 and 47. So Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come down from Judea to Galilee... He went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So it says in verse 46 that Jesus has come again to Cana and Galilee. We saw last week the first sign. He was in Cana then. That was at the beginning of chapter 2. But then after that, Jesus goes south. He goes down to Judea. He's doing ministry in Jerusalem. He has the famous conversation with Nicodemus at night in John chapter 3. And then in John 4, throughout most of the chapter, Jesus is headed north. He's going back up to Galilee, but he doesn't go the conventional way. The common thing to do for most Jewish people in the first century would have been to go around Samaria because they were in conflict with the Samaritans and it was even dangerous to go through Samaria. But Jesus didn't do it that way. Jesus chose to go straight up 
through Samaria, and that results in John 4 with the famous conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. So already we're seeing things about that show the character of Jesus. He's down in Jerusalem. He's ministering to this Jewish man, Nicodemus, in, in Jerusalem. But then he chooses to go up through Samaria, and he's ministering to this Samaritan woman, which was unheard of on a couple of levels. First of all, Jews had almost no contact with Samaritans. And second, men had almost no contact with women, at least conversationally, in that culture. And so it just shows how Jesus regard, how, how he regarded women, how he honored women. He treated them with such dignity, dignity that they usually did not get in that culture in the, in the first century. But Jesus made women a, a huge part of, of his ministry and had such compassion for them. So now Jesus is back in his home territory of Galilee once again, and once again he is in the village of Cana. And there is an official in Capernaum, just 14 miles down the road, whose son was ill. His son was gravely ill at the point of death. Now, verse 46 describes this man as an official the Greek word is basilikos, which means he was a royal official, which means he probably worked for Herod. Andreas Kostenberger, professor of New Testament at Southeastern Seminary, believes that this official was probably a Gentile. So again, this indicates a pattern of ministry in Jesus. What have we seen? Even just in these early chapters of John, he goes from ministering to a religious Jewish man in Jerusalem, Nicodemus, in chapter 3, to ministering to a Samaritan woman at the beginning of chapter 4, and now at the end of chapter 4, there's going to be ministry with a Gentile. What is this saying about Jesus and his mission? What it's saying is that the gospel is for the world. The gospel is for all peoples. As 1 Timothy 2.4 says, God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3.9 says he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus is showing us early on in this book that his heart was for the world, for all peoples, even the people that were had traditionally been in conflict or had been excluded in that culture. He had a heart for the world, and that's the heart that he's called us to have. We are called to have the heart of Christ to reach out to all peoples with the gospel. And especially as Americans, with the blessings that we have and the access to the gospel that we are privileged to have in our culture. We are blessed to be a blessing. God has blessed us to take what we have and to leverage it and all of our resources to reach all people around the world for Christ. That's really the message that's coming out in these early chapters of John. Well, this daddy is experiencing something in the city of Capernaum that really 
brings all people together. Whatever kind of background you may come from, when a child is gravely ill and possibly at the point of death, uh, this just kind of evens things out. You know, it's been amazing for me as a pastor over 22 years to, to be in a lot of ICU waiting rooms and hospitals and just to see how when people are in that situation, there's a loved one who is gravely ill, how people relate to one another. And, and it's, it's really a special thing to watch because the people in that waiting room, they, they're usually from lots of different kinds of backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds and cultures and different races and things like that. But they're all they're brought together in that room by a, a crisis, by a, a loved one who's obviously critically ill. And just the way that there's a there's a tenderness usually that goes on. There's an there's an openness to, to one another. There's a caring for one another, even if they just recently met that day or the day before their concern for one another. You wish we could carry more of that throughout all of our culture, that it wouldn't just happen in ICU waiting rooms. But this father is going through that. And he's been sitting at the bedside of his precious boy. And all of his, he's a royal official, so he has political power, clearly. He's probably got wealth as well, but none of that matters. He's, he's been sitting there crying helplessly at the bedside of his gravely ill son. And he would trade in a moment all of his wealth and all of his power, all of his status, his position, all of that. He would trade it all in a heartbeat if his precious beloved son could be whole once again. But he hears that Jesus is just 14 miles away in Cana. And even though this man was probably a Gentile, he doesn't have a lot of solid spiritual training, certainly in his background. He's heard that Jesus has the power to work miracles. And so he probably rises very, very early in the morning to begin making his way to the city of Cana. Now, Capernaum, where he lives, is right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And when, if you visit Israel, when you, you, it was amazing the first time I did, and you get to the crest of the hills and you look down at the Sea of Galilee. You're looking down at it. And it's just a shimmering, glittering, beautiful body of water. It's like it's at the bottom of a bowl. Capernaum is 695 feet below sea level. And so as he begins his journey to Cana, he's going straight uphill. But listen, there is so much adrenaline that has to be coursing through this father's veins because of the grave situation, the desperate situation of his boy that he doesn't even, he doesn't even feel the... The, the steep climb because he's so desperate to get to Jesus. And so he sets out early. He probably would have gotten to, to Cana about 12.30 in the afternoon. And he went straight for Jesus. So, what's going to happen? 
The next thing that we see in verse 48 is really some frustration. He gets to Jesus and it says, Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, at first glance, it seems like Jesus is almost being callous or somewhat cold. I mean, after all, here's this desperate daddy. He's He's he just he's just he's done everything he can to get to Jesus to get his boy some help and the situation is desperate and it almost it comes across here in English like Jesus is sort of talking down to or sort of lecturing this father. That's not what was happening. That's not what was happening at all. Both uses of the word you, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. In Greek, they're both plural. So when Jesus says this in verse 48, he's really not addressing the Father one-on-one. He's really more talking to the crowd that's around him. People have gathered around this man And Jesus is talking to them, and you can really sense some frustration in what he's saying here. Probably for a couple of reasons. Jesus has just come from Samaria. The first part of chapter 4 is taken up with his ministry in the Samaritan town. And he has this amazing conversation with the woman at the well about living water and all of that. And what happens is that this whole Samaritan village experiences the spiritual awakening. And they're filled with joy and they're incredibly receptive to Jesus. And now he's come home to Galilee. Jesus, of course, was raised in Nazareth, which is another village right around here. And many of the people that he's talking to, many of his own people, Galileans, Jews like him, he knew that many of them were quite skeptical about his ministry. They were still somewhat guarded about how they thought about Jesus and and, and what he was doing and preaching and so forth. As we saw in the prologue of John, in John 1.11, it says that he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. I mean, how heartbreaking that must have been. And you can add to that the fact, not only did most of the Jewish people, his own people, not receive him, but at this point, even his own family were still, they, they were still doubters. His siblings, and in some cases even his mother, was, uh, was, was, were skeptical about Jesus. But yet... He's just come from Samaria where there's been this overwhelming reception and these Samaritan people had none of the spiritual privileges that the Jewish people of Galilee that were standing around in that crowd had received. The Samaritans were really, they they had no solid biblical training or anything like that, but yet they had been so receptive and here many of these people were skeptical. And there's probably another reason too why Jesus says this, and that is because Jesus knows that many of the people who are following him, who do appear to be enthusiastic about his ministry, are going to fall away because their commitment is very shallow. They think that the signs that he's doing are really cool, 
Miracles are really cool. But when Jesus starts talking about crosses, taking up crosses and following him, which he's increasingly going to begin to do, and we'll see it as we go through John, many of those people are going to say, I'm out of here. I'm not into crosses. I think signs are really cool, but I'm not into crosses. See, they, they thought they were focused on the signs instead of on what the signs were pointing to, which is the Savior. That's really what Jesus is talking about here in verse, in verse 48. And, and there's a message for us too, because all of us have been on the receiving end, really, of so many blessings. In some cases, miracles in our lives. But verses like this are really a challenge to us to reflect and ask ourselves, are we more in love with God's gifts than with the giver of the gifts? It's always something for us to reflect on. Then we come to the celebration. So what's going to, what's going to, happen, what's going to happen next? Um, Jesus, who has been sort of addressing the crowd, is now going to begin sort of, it, it comes back to a one-on-one with this desperate dad. And so in verse 49, the official says to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And the choice of language here, the, in, in the original, when, when he says my child terminology there really indicates the closeness of this father and his boy. They loved each other. This, this is a good parent. He loves his little boy so much, and it just comes out in the, in the term that he uses here. Um, on February the 20th, Thursday, February 20th, 1862, Five o'clock in the afternoon, Willie Lincoln died in the White House, President Lincoln's son. He had been sick with typhoid fever for weeks. And during that time, the President and the First Lady had kept a vigil at his bedside. Willie was like the life of the family. He was 11 years old, a vivacious little boy, would run all through the White House. And, and they all loved him. His parents just absolutely adored him, and they had sat by his bedside and watching him languish with typhoid fever as his life just continually ebbed away. Doris Kearns Goodwin, in her book Team of Rivals about Lincoln, says that on that afternoon when Willie finally expired, that the president was so overcome that he burst into the room of an aide and just was sobbing and cried out, my boy is gone. He's really gone. And this father knows that barring some sort of divine intervention, that's the situation that he's going to be in. And Jesus, who was omniscient, who knew everything. He immediately sees the situation. And his heart is moved with compassion for this father and for his son. And so Jesus says to him in verse 50, Go, your son will live. 
Now, this is fascinating because miracles, by definition, were, were unusual in and of themselves, but long-distance miracles, well, that was just not something that people had really heard of. In fact, in verse 49, when the official makes the request of Jesus, he's really presuming here that Jesus has to be physically present like to come and lay his hands on him or whatever for this miracle to happen. And he says, sir, come down. In other words, come down, come literally down from Cana down to Capernaum to before my child dies. Thinks Jesus is going to have to come with him. But Jesus just says to him, go. Your son will live. It's done. So what's he going to do? The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Now, just think about it. I mean, this is a man who he's had probably very little solid biblical training in his life. He was either a Gentile or a pretty non-observant Jew if he was working for Herod, which his title would indicate that he was. And so this is not like this guy has got a wealth of spiritual, spiritual riches in his background or anything like that. But when Jesus speaks, he just takes Jesus at his word. Now listen, this is the kind of faith that just delights the heart of God. It's very, very similar to another incident that happens um, in Capernaum, actually, that Matthew 8 tells us about. It says, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion, this is a Roman soldier, another Gentile, came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word. And my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. This centurion, this Roman soldier, has had very little biblical training. He's grown up as a Gentile, as an idol worshiper. But what he has had is he's had some military training. He's a centurion. That means he commands a century of men, a hundred men. And he knows how authority operates in the military context. He knows that he speaks to the, one of the hundred soldiers under him, and he issues an order, and it's done. And he knows that he's also a man who's under authority, that he's under the authority of higher-ranking officers and ultimately under the, the authority of the Caesar. And when he receives orders, it's done. He understands how authority operates, and he perceives that Jesus is in charge, that Jesus possesses the authority. 
And therefore, Jesus doesn't have to be physically present. He can just speak a word of command, and it's done. And that's what happens here. Because what happens? The, the man takes Jesus at his word. He begins to go back to Capernaum. And it says, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, it's one o'clock in the afternoon, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all of his household. Jesus just speaks commands and things are done. When there's a storm on the Sea of Galilee, what does he do? Jesus speaks to the wind of the waves and says, peace, be still. There's calm. People are possessed by demons. What does Jesus do? Tells the demons, be gone, they're gone. He has power over nature. He has power over demons. And here he demonstrates power and authority over disease. He just speaks the word and it's done. Now listen, what does this say to us about prayer, the, the importance of in prayer? Because how many times do we face situations, difficulties, dilemmas, challenges, and instead of going to God immediately with those things in prayer, I mean, we do everything else. <laughs> We try to figure it out on our own. I mean, we try to manage it on our own and, and all of that. And, and instead of going to God, the first thing, the one who has the power and the authority to do more in five minutes than what we could ever do in five years in our own strength, we sometimes just have the tendency to just kind of not take it to God immediately, but just take it everywhere else first. No, 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 no. We're to go to God first. Go to Him first. He's the one with the power and the authority to work. When God moves into a situation, done. Game over. It's done. He commands and it happens. There's something else that... I think we need to get here by way of application, and it's this. Why do we so often insist on seeing before believing? This father doesn't have the luxury of doing that. Jesus just says, go, your son will live. Well, he can't see what's happening in Capernaum. He can't see it, and in that day, there's no cell phone, there's nothing like that to even hear from anyone what has actually happened. He can't see it. He has to just trust that it's happened. He has to just believe before he sees, which is what God wants us to do. I think about Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples, who after Jesus rose from the dead, other disciples had seen the risen Christ. Thomas had not at that point. And Thomas says to them, he says, look, unless I can... Put, see the nail prints in his hand and put my, put my fingers there and put my hand in the side where the spear went in. I'm not going to believe what you guys are telling me. But what happens? Risen Christ appears to Thomas. Thomas falls down before him and says, My Lord and my God. And what does Jesus say to Thomas? He says to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Which is really what Hebrews tells us is the definition of faith, right? Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then just five verses later, he tells us, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. God calls us, 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, to walk by faith and not by sight. We're we're not to be a people who just do life according to what we can see. We're not to be people who say, well, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. We're to be people who say, I believe it because Jesus says it. (laughs) People who take him at his word. People who trust and who God is, and who trust in the faithfulness of God. You know, in our individual lives, I mean, we all face just a, a, a myriad of different things in our lives where we, we face a choice in that moment to just say, okay, am I going to step out on faith here and act on what I know is right, what God wants us to do because I, because I believe in His love and His power and His faithfulness? Or am I going to insist on seeing before I believe? That's really not faith. It's the same thing collectively as a church family. I mean, if we want to make an impact on this city for Christ, we cannot be a church that just plays it safe, holds back, oh, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. No, we have to step out on faith, move forward for God, trusting in who God is and the way that He uh, provides and the way that he intervenes and, and, and on and on and on. I mean, we face cha- uh, decisions like this all the time, individually and as a church. Now, notice something else here, another point of application, and it's this. This father has to move from theoretically believing that Jesus can work miracles to personally trusting that Jesus has worked the miracle. It's one thing to intellectually believe that, well, yeah, God can do miracles. I mean, clearly he does believe that when he's still in Capernaum. He's heard about Jesus as a miracle worker, and so theoretically he believes there's some hope here for my son. This man can do miracles. That's very different from the moment in Cana when Jesus says, go, your son will live, to believing in that moment that Jesus has done a miracle. At that point, it's not just theory anymore. It's not just intellectual assent anymore. It's not just believing facts about Jesus. It's trusting in the Word of Jesus. Very different. You know, you can look up in the sky and see jets flying around and believe that flight happens, that flight is possible. It's another matter to walk down the ramp and get on an airplane and sit down and trust that it's going to get you somewhere safely. Very different. Christianity is like the latter. <laughs> it's a commitment. It's, it's placing your life in the hands of Jesus. It's trusting that Jesus has done on the cross and in the resurrection everything that is necessary to secure the forgiveness of our sins and Life abundant and life eternal. It's personal trust in Him. There is a personal transaction. Has that happened in your life? I can't answer that question for you. 
Only you can answer that. That's between you and God. But it has to happen. It's not enough to believe facts about Jesus, even if they're the right facts. What saves is believing in him, trusting in him, placing your life in his hands. He's calling upon you to do that today. You you face a new year. Christian, you've got a new year before you. It's full of all kinds of opportunities. We just sung earlier, ponder anew what the Almighty can do. Would you do that in your life this year? Would you ponder anew what a sovereign, almighty God who has adopted you as his son or daughter could do in or through you this year? I I mean, so often I think we settle for so much less than what God wants in our lives. I mean, we've got issues in our lives and, you know, just different kinds of sins that we're dealing with or a, a, a challenge here or whatever, difficulties over here. And, and so often we just settle and we resign ourselves. Hey, it's always going to be this way. I'm always going to be this way. No, hey, listen, we're talking about a sovereign God. We need to trust in Him. You know, that God can do new things, fresh things, in our lives this year. We need to believe that as a church, always, always pushing forward, always acting on faith, not waiting for what we can see, but trusting, trusting in what God can do in and through this congregation as we seek to make an impact for Christ in, the, in, this, uh, in this community and, and around the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, we pray that you would make us people who take you at your word. Father, we pray that you would make us people of faith. Lord, would we be able to look back at the end of this year and say, I really grew as a, I really grew in my faith this year. God is enabling me to trust him more than I ever have. Instead of taking situations on myself and just being loaded down with anxious care and burdens, I'm learning to place these things in God's hands and, and go to God first, the, for the first thing, and not, and not after I've tried everything else to do it on my own. Lord, make us more people of prayer. Make us people of faith. Make us people who just simply trust in You. Lord, give us... Give us childlike faith that just delights and blesses your heart. Father, we pray that you give us that as individual Christians. Lord, give us that as a church as well. Lord, make us a congregation that that believes that you have great plans in store for our congregation if we will step out in faith and just trust in you. Or just make us a people like that that's just going to make an incredible impact in this community for the gospel and to the ends of the earth through missions with the gospel. Father, I pray for specifically for people right now um, who need to make a commitment to you. Lord, we pray that you would open the eyes of hearts to trust in Christ right now. Lord, for believers, that you're calling to a deeper commitment, a deeper level of faith this year. Lord, would you just speak to them in such an overwhelming way? 
right now. And so we give you this time of decision. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today and God's speaking to your heart about a commitment to Him, trusting in Christ as your Savior, God's working in your life to be a part of this church family, uh, this invitation is for you. You're invited to come. Just want to, want to come pray. You can, you can do that. So let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.